Hi, listeners. Welcome back to the Here's How podcast, where this week's episode, I spoke with living, breathing miracle Ashley Halford. Doctors estimated Ashley had about four weeks to live after diagnosing her with cancer in her jaw, a malignant brain tumor, numerous tumors in her lungs, and spots on her liver. After I received treatment for about four weeks, they repeated the scan to see the brain tumor was still there. It had not gotten bigger. It really had not changed. But the tumors in my lungs, there was more of them. And the ones that they marked and actually measured had grown. I have a copy of the radiologist report from the body scan that day, and it literally reads verbatim. There are innumerable tumors present on both lungs. She said, if you look at the scan of your lungs, it doesn't even look like lungs. All you see are tumors. She said, you've got a decision to make. She said, you can stop the treatment and go home and enjoy the time with your family and be done. You might have four weeks. Or she said, I have one last ditch effort of chemo, one more concoction that we could try. Well, this is the Here's How podcast where we specialize in happy endings. Ashley outlived her diagnosis and has been in remission for more than 14 years. She also birthed two children, even though doctors thought treatment had sent her into early menopause. I am so excited to share her story with you. My name is Erin Jensen, and this podcast has been a dream in my heart for a very long time. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and leave a review. As an entertainment writer, I've talked to a number of celebrities. Jennifer Aniston, Brad Pitt, some who weren't married to each other, The Rock, Selena Gomez. My favorite interviews are the ones that go beyond whatever project the star is looking to promote. Conversations that get into topics that we can all relate to. Things like failures, disappointments, grief. My therapist would tell you, if he wasn't bound by HIPAA laws, that I could benefit from increasing my resiliency. I've never cried over spilled milk, but I have cried over spilled orange juice, which is why I'm in awe of people who are able to overcome what my mind views as unimaginable loss, inconceivable heartbreak, or an insurmountable challenge. If you've ever come across a remarkable story of triumph and thought to yourself, how on earth did they do that? Here's how. Ashley met her husband, David, when she was in the first grade. He was in kindergarten and already smitten. He claims to have had a crush on me his whole life. In the mornings, we would come into the school and everyone would sit in the lunchroom until it was time for class. And he recalls trying to talk to me and that I would always hide behind my lunchbox. By the time middle school rolled around, Ashley and David went to different schools, but they got reacquainted in college. We started just hanging out as friends in this large group and ended up dating and getting married. And we knew when we got married that we wanted to have a big family. Ideally, I would have probably had five kids. So that was our plan. Ashley became pregnant in 2007. At the beginning of her pregnancy, she noticed a knot in her neck. A doctor thought it was an infection and prescribed her an antibiotic. That same scenario rocked on and on and on throughout most of my pregnancy to where I saw my primary care doctor. I saw an ENT several times. One of the doctors went so far as to order an ultrasound of the knot just to, I think, calm my mind and also see what it would say. And when that report came back, the radiologist reported that he really thought it was a stone in my salivary gland and that there was nothing I could do while I was pregnant. The ENT said, once you deliver, we'll go in and we can remove the stone and you'll have no more symptoms. But until then, you're probably going to have a recurrent infection and we'll have to keep you on and off antibiotics. So for eight months, the knot would grow. It would get big, maybe like the size of a gumball. But then as soon as I started antibiotics, it would shrink back down. But then within a few weeks, it was back. 
cancer runs in my family. My dad's side of the family, most all the women have been affected by cancer. My grandmother had throat cancer. My dad had two sisters. One had a brain tumor and passed in her early 30s. And then my other aunt also had lymphoma and she's still living. That's always in the back of my mind throughout this pregnancy. At 32 weeks, it came back with a vengeance. It was about the size of a golf ball. It was hard as a brick. I mean, so hard just to move my neck, it hurt. It stopped responding to the antibiotics. And so that's when I told the doctor, I'm a little concerned about this. He said, I, I don't think it's cancerous, but if it would put your mind at ease, I will do a biopsy. I went on a Monday to have the biopsy. It was either 24 or 32 needle sticks into that hard knot. They were not able to give me any kind of numbing medicine or anything because of the pregnancy. So it was horrific. And they called me that night, the doctor did, the ENT, and he said, listen, he said, I just wanted to update you and let you know that the pathologists have been looking at those slides today and they're really not sure. They don't have a definitive answer, so it'll probably be tomorrow. But I just wanted to let you know that. And I really went to bed at night with peace because I thought if it was cancer, they would see that immediately. Tuesday, my husband is a deer hunter. He was off of work that day and he said, I'd like to go hunting unless you have something going on. And I said, no, I don't have nothing going on. And he said, what about when they call about your boxy? I said, well, I'm not worried about it. So he went deer hunting. I went with my mom. Her whole family had a kind of mini family reunion. We went out to eat. I mean, literally just was carefree that day. And that evening around 530, the doctor called and he said, hey, Ashley, are, are you alone or is your husband home? And I knew. I knew in that instant. We could have hung up right then. And I said, well, I'm actually alone, but whatever you've got to tell me, tell me. And he said, well, the pathologist have called and it is a malignant tumor and he said that's all I know for now and he said I'll be in touch with you in the morning because I've got to figure out what we're going to do and that was it that was the extent of our phone call except for I do remember asking him right before we hung up I said am I going to die he said no you're not going to die we've got this so we hung up and I couldn't get my husband on the phone he was deep in the woods no service what are you thinking in that moment? How are you reacting to the news all alone, like you said? I think really my first thought was to the baby. If I have cancer and he's living inside of me, doesn't he have cancer at this point? So I was concerned for myself, but really more concerned for my baby. And I just remember I couldn't get in touch with my husband. I called my mom and I said, I have cancer. And she just lost it. And I really don't remember much about our conversation other than her saying we're on our way. And then I called my friend and I told her I have cancer. It was almost like it was rolling off my tongue as nonchalantly as I would say, I cooked a dinner. Was it like denial, um, shock? I think it was shock. I really think it was shock. Because as I've said, I, didn't, I was not expecting that. Ashley was told she would need to be induced immediately. I told him, I said, no way. If this baby is only 32 weeks, I'm not going to do this. And they, oh, would not hear it. I had no choice. Then they toured us through the NICU. They said, we want you to see what he'll look like, what kind of machines he'll be hooked up to. They took us to a baby who was about 33 weeks. And I remember looking in at that little tiny baby and just hooked up to so many wires and 
there was machines and I, I just, I lost it. And I, I thought, I, there's no way I can do this. We walked in on that Friday night to be induced. Literally on Monday, I was in my mind, a healthy pregnant person. And on Friday, I have cancer and I'm delivering a preemie baby. Your son is born. How does his arrival compare to what you were warned about? What condition he might be in? My OB had said, as soon as he's born, you won't even be able to hold him. She said, we'll let you see him, but we will take him straight to the NICU. They had told us that he would probably be blue. He probably would not even be taking any breaths or crying. So I was really scared at what it was going to be like when he came out. I think there was probably 20 people in there between the nurses, the NICU team, you know, the respiratory team, the doctors. And I think I pushed three, two or three times and he was there. I was scared. It all happened so quick. I remember as soon as she pulled him out and she was holding him, he was screaming, crying, and obviously breathing because he's screaming. And he was pink. He wasn't blue. And after a few seconds of them listening to him and checking him, they laid him on me. And instantly when he laid on me, I've got a picture, his little hand that was just just so tight at my neck and his little hand just rested right there. The NICU doctor came over and examined him and he said, I, there's no reason to take him. There's no reason. The doctor came by our room. I think it was the very next day. And the doctor had to have been in his late 60s, maybe early 70s. He said, I've been doing this my entire life. He said, I've never once seen a baby delivered at 33 weeks on the turn day. I was just 33 weeks and zero days. So I've never seen a baby delivered that early that didn't at least come to the NICU for evaluation and supplemental oxygen or anything. Functioning and acting as if he was a full-term baby. And how much did he weigh? He was four pounds and 11 ounces. His lowest weight was four, four, but I can't remember if that was when we left the hospital or the next day at the pediatrician. He was so little, preemie clothes did not fit him. And so he had nothing to wear. My parents went to Build-A-Bear and bought outfits from Build-A-Bear. That's what he wore. He wore Build-A-Bear outfits. And how soon after did you have your surgery to remove your tumor? He was delivered on Saturday. We came home on Monday and it was Thanksgiving week. And on Wednesday, I had to go to the hospital to have my surgery. It was supposed to only be like a two-hour surgery, but it ended up being over a six-hour surgery. The tumor was much more aggressive than what they thought. That evening, and the doctor came by my room and he said, listen, he said, I feel so confident with this surgery. He said, we removed everything. We took all tissue. We made sure that the pathologist, they would remove and remove and remove until they came back and said, there are clear margins. We have very good, clear margins of no cancer. He said, I don't even know that you'll need any chemo or radiation. He said, that's obviously going to be a, a call that the oncologist will make but I'm confident we got it all. So I was ecstatic. I was very happy, very happy. I stayed in the hospital through Thanksgiving. That Thursday was Thanksgiving and I was there in the hospital and I came home on Friday. You are my fifth person that I've interviewed for this podcast. And the other people I've asked, did you get bogged down in the why me? And they're like, no, I just didn't think of it that way. You were like, I thought, why me? Why me? Mm -hmm. Tell me about why you thought, why me? And then I know you had a conversation that helped you get out of that. There was such a whirlwind when it all first happened and then they delivered Harley and I had my surgery. So there was such a flurry of activity for so long that there wasn't time to think. 
there was no time to think what's coming next, what's happening. But then there became this lull. And that's when I started thinking. And I was like, why me? And, you know, obviously by reading my book that I, I believe in God and I have a lot of faith and I'm a Christian. And so that was my first thought was, why me, God? Why me? I grew up in a Christian home. My dad is a preacher. I went to a Christian school. For years, I worked a bus route at our church, going and picking up underprivileged children. I just thought of myself as a good person. You know, you learn in math, one plus one equals two. So you think, if I'm a good person and I live a good life, good things are sure to follow. Also, I will say in the same breath, you learn by reading the Bible that that's not true. And so when this happened... I did get mad at God and I was upset and I was frustrated that he would do this to me. I was 26 years, literally had just turned 26 years old. I was pregnant with our first child. Why would God allow something like this to happen? I was very frustrated with it for a long time until I had a conversation with a Sunday school teacher at our church. I just told him one day, I'm upset. I'm mad. I want to know why me? Why would God do this to me? And just without missing a beat, he's like, why not you? What makes you so special and so good and so much above others that something bad shouldn't happen to you? And boy, that was an eye opener. But when he said that, it made perfect sense. Why not me? And he's right. I'm nobody special. The Bible says, don't think it's strange when a fiery trial happens. Don't think it's strange. He says, so the very worst outcome of this for you would be heaven. And you're upset about that? (laughs) And I was like, you're right. That really changed my way of thinking. Shortly after Harley's first Christmas, he was admitted to the hospital for RSV and Ashley was experiencing headaches. I chalked it up to no sleep in the hospital and everything I had been dealing with, the stress of having surgery, having cancer, trying to do the IVF and it failed. And then he's sick. I was at the hospital with Harley and I remember his pulmonologist coming into the room. And when he walked into the room, I saw two of him and I was like closing my eyes and squinting. And he even asked me, he said, are you okay? And I said, I see two of you. And he was like, you need some sleep. And it just got worse. I called my doctor and they said, you need to see an eye doctor. The eye doctor told Ashley there was nothing wrong with her eyes and attributed her symptoms to stress, but her condition didn't let up. It worsened and she was advised to see a neuro-ophthalmologist. We tried to call and he was booked and he wouldn't see me. And my dad called and I, I wasn't with my dad when he made the phone call, but I think my dad just broke down crying and just telling him my story. And he said, you've got to see her. You've just got to see her. And so he agreed. So I went across the street and saw this doctor And I think he knew, I think he knew what it was instantly. He did some tests and he said, I'm going to order an MRI and I want you to go right now. My right eye became fixed. At that point, I could see out of it, but I could not move my eyeball. My mother took me for the MRI and we got back and she said, I'm going to stay at the hospital with Harley and your dad's going to take you back. She knew and she just couldn't take hearing it. So me and my dad went back for the appointment and that doctor came in, he sat down and he, he pulled up the image of my brain and right in the middle of my brain, it looked like a golf ball was sitting there. And he said, do you see that? And I said, yes, sir. He said, do you see how there's not one of those on the left side of your brain, but on the right side of your brain, there is one. And I said, yes, sir. He said, everything in your brain is symmetrical. So what you see on one side, you should see on the other side. And he said, so that's a tumor. And he said, it shouldn't be there. 
And I said, do you think it's cancer? And he said, yes. Given your history and what just happened, he said, there's there's no doubt in my mind that it's cancer. And I asked him, I said, well, when can you do surgery and remove it? And I'll never forget, I will never forget, I can take myself back to that moment sitting in his office. I mean, I can put myself in that chair at this very moment. And he looked at me dead in my eyes and he said, that tumor is in a place that only God's hands can go. He said, I can never do surgery. I said, well, what can we do? And he said, radiation is the only treatment for this. And he said, we're going to start on Monday. And I said, okay. And so I went back to the hospital and the pain became so intense and so bad. And I could not move my eye. At this point, I was throwing up because I was just so sick. When he says to you, it's a place only God can go, are you then immediately praying? Do you then worry that you might die? I remember thinking, I'm going to die. I have brain cancer. I'm going to die. And also, he can't operate on it. I was praying, but I don't really know that I was actually praying so much as I was just every now and then crying out to God, help me. The pain was so excruciating, I couldn't formulate a thought. And if I was thinking, I was thinking about Harley. They're talking about putting him on a ventilator. And my husband is homesick. And now I'm dying in the hospital. It was bad. It was really bad. And your brain tumor, unfortunately, is not the only tumor then that they find. Once I was admitted, my oncologist came to see me. She said, I think it would be wise if we do a full body scan. Because if it's in your brain... That means it's gotten into your bloodstream. And she said, if it's in your bloodstream, it could be anywhere. I said, okay. And really, I don't think I had thought that it was anywhere else. At some point, you just keep thinking it can't possibly get any worse. I went for the full body scan and she came up to the room and she said, there are several, several, several tumors in your lungs. And she said they marked some of them. The size, the ones that they marked are very big. They also noted that I had spots on my liver. To this day, I still have those spots on my liver and they've never changed. So I don't know. It's really hard to say what those are, but I had spots on my liver. And so she said, we are going to start chemo and radiation. They did radiation to my brain and to my jawbone because the cancer that was in my neck had grew into my jaw and it was brutal. It was awful. And so after I received treatment for about four weeks, they repeated the scans to see the brain tumor was still there. It had not gotten bigger. It really had not changed. But the tumors in my lungs, there was more of them. And the ones that they marked and actually measured had grown. I have a copy of the radiologist report from the body scan that day. And it literally reads verbatim. There are innumerable tumors present on both lungs. And I remember asking her, I said, what exactly does that mean? And she said, there's too many to count. They cannot count them. She said, if you look at the scan of your lungs, it doesn't even look like lungs. All you see are tumors. She said, you've got a decision to make. You can stop the treatment and go home and enjoy the time with your family. And you might have four weeks. Or she said, I have one last ditch effort of chemo, one more concoction that we could try. I just couldn't stop. And why couldn't you? I couldn't imagine Harley not having his mother. If I didn't have a child, I probably would have given up because it was that bad. It really was. But the thought of Harley not having his mother was more than I could bear. 
And so I thought, I don't want him to read about me or hear about me. And the final thing he reads about his mother is that she gave up. I wanted them to tell him that she tried everything for you. She tried everything. There were several times I laid in my bed and I just begged God to take me. Please, if I'm going to have to live like this and it's not going to work out, I said, please just take me. I don't want to live like this. And he did it. The doctor said, I have one last ditch effort. And I said, I'll take it. I'll take the last ditch effort. Come back next week for part two of Ashley's story. As always, I thank you so much for listening. Be sure to subscribe to Here's How so you don't miss an episode. If you're enjoying this podcast, please leave a review or recommend it to a friend. Find the show on Instagram at Here's How Podcast. I hope you have a great week.